Let's pray. Father, in our time now in your word, we pray you would make it uh, extremely profitable, that you would cause it to take root in our lives, uh, that we would think on it, uh, that we would think correctly about it, that we would recognize it for what it is, uh, that we would be stunned that you have spoken to us, and that we would be refreshed by what it is you say to us, and what it is you have done and are continuing to do for us. I pray that uh, you'll stir us to action uh, for the things that please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you maybe have read um, the Chronicles of Narnia and... uh, I guess maybe seeing the movies count. But um, you get all the way to the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, and you get to the very last story, the last book, the last battle, as it's called. And when uh, the main characters, the four siblings, have finally arrived in uh, the new Narnia, Lucy says... I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. All right? We've come to a place where everything is allowed. Everything is permitted. Now, how freeing does that sound? All right? To be at a place where anything you want to do is totally permissible. Pretty freeing, right? Um, What would you do with that freedom? If If you had it now... Where, where anything is permitted, uh, what would you do with that freedom? Uh, Hide. Hide? I mean, if anything's permitted, who knows? Somebody might just walk up and murder me. Purge. <laughs> if you can't trust anybody else, then you're just fending for yourself, right? Now, we, we actually can answer this uh, fairly easily because in some way or another, all of us have acted as if We've already arrived at such a place. All right? Um, We always do what we think will give us the most joy. Now, maybe sometimes we might think, well, what I really want to do, I'm not allowed to do, and so there's limits. So, So that's, you know, a caveat, I guess. But most of the time, all of us tend to do exactly what we want to do. We do what's going to make us... The happiest. Now, is that wrong? Is it wrong to do what makes you the happiest? Not all the time, right? What did you say? It depends on if it's by illicit means. Okay, explain. So, like, you know, getting a switch isn't wrong, but if you steal it, it's wrong. Okay. So, if you want to own something, there are procedures, right? Don't just don't just steal it. Now, um, the short answer, I think, is no. It's not, it's not wrong to pursue what makes you the happiest. In fact, God intends it to be that way. So, so God has created us in such a way that we ought to pursue what makes us the happiest. However, in this world as we know it, and we've only ever lived in a fallen world, 
our view of true joy is pretty deformed. The things that we think make us the happiest are actually normally the things that will let us down uh, most often. So C.S. Lewis, in another thing that he, that he writes, uh, says something like, Our desires normally are not too great, they're too small. And that we are far too easily pleased um, in, in what we want rather than going for what will ultimately really satisfy. And, and all of this um, is to say that there's, there's a, a direct connection between what we want and the way the world will end. So I, I don't know what all of you specifically believe about the end of the world, but think for a minute about how you expect the world will end, and probably your expectation, or at least your hope of it, is good. It's positive. You think that things are going to turn out well in the end, or again, at least you hope that they will. And, and all, of us, um, all of us think this way because even stories help us to think this way, okay? So uh, some of you are familiar with Tim Keller, uh, he pastored in New York City for a while. Keller um, is famous for saying this. He says, In the end, everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. In other words, if things had just always stayed perfect, if we had just never left Eden, that would be great. But in the end, things will be better because they didn't always stay perfect. It once was messed up, and then it got put back together in the end. And Keller says, that's even going to be, be greater. And that's really Keller's way of answering the question put forth in another story. Uh, so so if, you, if, you were, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, um, and you get to the, near the end of the Return of the King, uh, and, and they finally accomplish their mission, and Sam says this, uh, to Gandalf. He says, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asks, he asks Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? And Gandalf's answer is this, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land, and he listened, and as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. So, one day, there's going to come a day where things will be so happy and so joyous that it will be like we've never experienced true joy before. Now, I, I bring all this up to say that Isaiah's, we're coming to the end of Isaiah's story. We've been in Isaiah now for about four months, and Isaiah's story also would, would cause us to think that things are going to end in a very joyous way. And, and when Isaiah wrote this, things were not very joyous for Isaiah or his people because they were in exile. All right? They were being overtaken. They were in the process of being overtaken by their enemies. And this was, this was 700 years before this Savior that they're expecting would be born. This is about 700 years before Christ before Jesus was born. And yet, Isaiah's message really encompasses all of history, from the beginning of creation to the end of time. So, in your notes, hopefully somewhat quickly, uh, I want to talk about four reasons that we can be joyous at the end of all things. Four reasons for joy. And we're going to start in Isaiah 60. So if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Isaiah 60, I invite you to do that now. Uh, if you're borrowing a Bible from this room, Isaiah 60 begins on 
is it 525, I think, if you're not already there. So go ahead and turn. It's going to be important for you to follow along in the Scripture. So four reasons for joy at the end of all things based on the end of the book of Isaiah. So here we go. Number one. Reason number one. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth. Now, for these first uh, few chapters that we're going to look at tonight, it's kind of interesting the way that Isaiah writes. Sometimes he writes just as though it's himself and it sounds like him, but other times it almost sounds like he's quoting somebody else. It almost sounds like he's speaking for God about God. Now, how could someone speak before God, speak for God about God? That person would also have to be God-like, right? And so that's why a lot of what Isaiah says sounds like things that Jesus himself would say later on. So pay close attention to how Isaiah words a lot of these things. We'll start in verse 1, and here's, here's how he uh, addresses this at the beginning, about the glory of the Lord covering the earth. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness of the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now this is, uh, this sounds, at least to me, this sounds a lot like the language of creation, okay? So I, I know most of us in here are familiar with some of the wording, at least, of Genesis 1, all right? So, so think about Genesis 1 with me. Um, we're pretty familiar with verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? And then verse 2, um, the earth was formless and void, and, and do you remember what was on the face of the deep? Darkness, good, yeah, darkness was on the face of the deep. Well, look at verse 2. Darkness will cover the earth, and thick darkness will cover the peoples, but the Lord will arise. Okay, so what's the first thing the Lord says into the darkness in Genesis 1? Let there be light, and there was light. So here's the earth covered in darkness, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen in you, and the nations shall come to your light. So when the glory of the Lord covers the earth, it will be as though light has come into a dark place. Which is similar to some things Isaiah has said earlier, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And the reason Isaiah addresses specifically um, the people and says things like your light is because he's talking to them about his city, about Jerusalem, about the place where the Lord is actually going to live and dwell and reign from. And so the first... Way the first subpoint there, um, first aspect of this glory of the Lord is the beauty of His city, the beauty of His city. So those first three verses we just read speak of it like it's going to be a, a a recreation of all things, and then you've got a section there starting in verse four where all other nations are going to come into this city, and they're going to bring their gifts and they're going to bring their animals. And look at the very last line of verse 7. The very last line of verse 7, he says, As these nations 
uh, come and they're bringing all of these things and they, they even bring good news, the praises of the Lord into the city. At the end of verse 7, uh, he says, And I will beautify my beautiful house. So, so again, this is the Lord saying, Where I live, where I dwell, in my city, in my temple, it will be beautiful because the light of the glory of God will be there. Um, look at the end of verse 9. There's a similar a similar statement. Because he has made you, that's the people in the city, beautiful. Um, look down at verse 13. The, the last couple of lines of verse 13. He says, all this is going to happen to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So, so the Lord is concerned about the beauty of his city. Now look at what he says um, about this city uh, in a little bit more detail. So go to verse 11. He says to the city, Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. All right? So a city, a city, do you know why a city would close its gates? Yeah, to keep people out they don't want there. So to, for protection, to keep enemies away. Well, if this city's gates are open all the time, what does that say about its enemies? They're not around. They've been dealt with already. There's no threat of people coming in, all right? The gates will be open continually. Uh, look down at verse 19. He says, In this place the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Now, both of those phrases about the gates being open all the time and the sun not shining because you don't need any other light because the, uh, the glory of God is the light, that, those are phrases that are picked up by John in, in the New Testament. So if you were to read Revelation 21 and what John has to say about the new heavens and new earth, this is exactly the way he describes it. Its gates are open all the time and there's no need for any other light except for the glory of the Lord. So, that's seen in the beauty of his city. The second way it's seen, you write this in, is in the anointing of his spirit. The anointing of his spirit. So, um, again, this is, this is a lot like Genesis 1. So, um, Genesis 1 says that darkness covered the face of the deep, and then the Spirit of God moved on the face of that darkness. So the Spirit of the Lord, again, is going to be at work. Look at chapter 61 and verse 1 to see how. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Now, uh, you might be familiar with uh, a New Testament reading of this. The first time that Jesus had a chance to... 
teach in the synagogue in his hometown. Uh, you might remember he opened up, it says, to the scroll of Isaiah, and this is the passage that he read. And do you remember what Jesus said about this passage? He says something like, all of these things are being fulfilled when, do you know? Yeah, today, like now, in your hearing, like you are hearing not just this, these words being read, but you are hearing them being fulfilled. Now, how could that be true? What does that basically mean? Jesus was doing what? Fulfilling exactly what Isaiah said, that somebody who's anointed by God's Spirit would fulfill. Yeah, he's fulfilling the words of the prophet. That's exactly right. So, Jesus comes. He has the Spirit on him in a way that no one else ever has. He brings good news to those who are poor, uh, so that he can bind up the brokenhearted and set free the, the captives and so forth. And if you continue reading down uh, the next set of verses, you would see that this spirit gets passed on to God's people. So think about that. Jesus, has, Jesus would have spiritual offspring. Uh, yes, the spirit would anoint Jesus in a unique way, but that spirit would be passed on. Um, to others, and then look what look what would happen to those people. So the last the last line of verse seven um, says that they these people who are who who have this spirit who are called by the name of the Lord. It says they shall have everlasting joy. They shall have everlasting joy. God is obviously concerned with His people's joy. If you go down to verse ten. Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. So does God care that we are joyful? Does God want us to be joyful? Yes. Yeah, he's not a killjoy. He, he is for our joy. He wants us to have joy in him because that's the place where we can have it most. The third way that this glory is spoken of is as though uh, it's a marriage. So write this in. The marriage of the redeemed. The marriage of the redeemed. So, Christ comes. He fulfills this prophecy. Um, he, he takes a bride for himself. So this, the wording here is very similar to what Sam read for us in Hosea uh, chapter 2, he says, I will betroth you, I will take you for myself, uh, I will establish my covenant with you, and, and, and you know, I'll show mercy on you where I didn't show mercy previously. You'll be my people, I will be your God. And those are the promises that are repeated uh, here in Isaiah 62. I'll give, you, um, I'll give you an example of this. Look down at verse um, 5. Uh, so Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, show, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So who's rejoicing in that verse? God is. God is a God of joy. He wants us to be joyful because He is joyful and true joy is found in Him. And, and all of this is why... You know, people ask big picture questions, right? Like, why am I on the earth? Well, this is why you're on the earth. To have joy in the one who brings us great 
joy, to see the glory of the Lord covering the earth the way it was intended to at creation. That's the first reason for joy. Here's the second reason for joy. The wrath of God will trample his enemies. The wrath of God will trample his enemies. So, Isaiah paints this picture of the glory of the Lord coming, and then you get to chapter 63, and it's almost like he has to ask, okay, who is it that's coming? Look at verse, look at verse 1. He says, so who is this who comes from Edom? That would be one of Israel's uh, neighboring countries. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? That's the capital of Edom. He says, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And the answer is this. He says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Mighty to save. We've, we've said kind of from the beginning that really that's, that's basically the theme of the whole book of Isaiah. He's mighty to save. All right, write that in your notes. The wrath of the Lord will trample his enemies, proving that he is mighty to save. He does save. He, and th- think about how remarkable this is, because how many of us deserve for the wrath of God to just completely trample us? That's, that's the, that's the um, natural condition of all of us, isn't it? Uh, we, we are guilty before God, we have been born in sin, and we have practiced, practiced sin continually all our lives. And we've offended this glorious God, and we deserve for Him to trample us for our sins. In fact, um, when, when, the, when the second question is asked here, uh, look at verse 2, when, when it's asked, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like His who treads in the winepress? The answer is this, uh, in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So, the imagery is something like this. Uh, maybe, maybe you've seen these wine presses where um, the, the, the folks go in uh, among the grapes. The grapes fill this tub and uh, the people go in, and with their bare feet, they stomp on the grapes. And then, of course, what happens to the juice? Where does it end up? On the people, right? On their clothes, uh, so that their so that their garments are spattered with this, you know, with this wine, with this uh, juice. All right, uh, that's the imagery that the Lord says here. Except he doesn't have juice or wine on his garments. What does he have? Blood. Because it's the picture is he's trampling his enemies just like a just like one would trample grapes in a wine press. And if you again, if you were to read um, the New Testament, so like Revelation fourteen, Revelation nineteen, John again pictures the wrath of God this way. So in your notes, you could write this in. Not only is he mighty to save, but he is worthy to judge. He is worthy to judge. He is he. Um, tramples his enemies violently and furiously. And again, this is our default position. So, so lest we become comfortable around God and His glory, uh, remember that uh, we, 
are deserving of this trampling. And one day it will come fully and finally on the earth. However, number three, the people of the Lord will seek His presence. The people of the Lord will seek His presence. So, starting in verse 7 of chapter um, 63, Isaiah begins now to, really, to address the Lord. Uh, He says in verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. So, so this is the voice of one who has recognized God has been merciful to us. We deserve to be trampled, and yet God has, has spared us. God has shown us uh, compassion. God has shown us mercy. Um, if, you, if you look down um, at verse 11, all right, so Isaiah 63 and verse 11. Um, Isaiah says that, uh, that he remembered... This is, he's talking about God. God remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. And so he asks, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit and who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make a name uh, for himself, an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? And then, and then at the end of verse 14... Uh, He says to the Lord, So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So so here's the way, here's the way it seems like Isaiah is um, kind of making his case to the Lord, or the way that he's seeking the Lord's presence, all right? And I think this is kind of interesting. So he says there in that first section, You have led us before. You have led us before. And he and he's remembering what? In what way had the Lord led Israel before? Specifically that he's remembering. He led them out of Egypt, Egypt, right? He delivered them uh, from Pharaoh and and from slavery and oppression in Egypt, right? So, you have led us before. So, look what he says in verse 15. Now, look down from heaven and see. Look from your holy and beautiful habitation. So, you have led us before. Now he's saying, look down. Now look down on us. So, you've done this for us before. So, now consider our state. We're being exiled again. Uh, we need your deliverance again. We need you to come down and go before us again. So look at us and then look at chapter 64 and verse 1, the second request that he makes. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and what? What does he ask? Isaiah 64, 1. Rend the heavens and come down. So look down and now come down. That's the, way it, that's the way it's there in your notes. You've led us before, so now look down, consider our state, and, and don't just look at us, but come to us. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to us. Now, this is, this is pretty remarkable when you consider the way that the Lord actually um, answered Isaiah's prayer. Did the Lord come to His people? He did, right? Not in Isaiah's day, but centuries later, God became flesh and dwelt among His people, right? That's, that's what we celebrate here at Christmas time. And 
as God came to His people. He came to them in the midst of their rebellion. He came to them knowing that they deserved to be trampled for their sins. And yet, instead of coming to judge them for their sins, what did He do? He put Himself in the place of judgment. Jesus allowed Himself to be trampled for the sins of His people. So, this is, this is the good news that Isaiah speaks to us. It's the good news of the Bible. It's the good news of Christianity. That you and I deserve to be completely trampled for our sins. And yet, God has come, and in our place, He has sent His Son, Jesus, who has taken that trampling for us. He, he went to the cross so that you and I don't have to pay the penalty for our sins. Isaiah prayed, Come down and deliver us like you did before in Egypt. And the way that the Lord answered that prayer uh, was to come and to become the sacrifice for sins. Which leads us to the fourth reason for joy in the future, and that is that the return of the Lord will establish a new creation. The return of the Lord will establish a new creation. I'll make these last few subpoints, I think, quickly, um, and then we'll kind of talk through them. But when the Lord returns, now, um, we want to make an important distinction here. Isaiah may or may not have known that there would be two separate comings of the Lord. So he prays for the Lord to come, the Lord did come, and yet here we are after Isaiah and we're waiting for the Lord to come again, aren't we? We're looking forward to this future return. We know that He came once, He dealt with our sins, He's coming again to establish a new creation. And when He does, a few things will happen. First of all, trouble will turn into hope. Trouble will turn into hope. Um, I'll, I'll point this out in a couple of verses. Look at verse... This is Isaiah 65 and verse 10. Isaiah 65 and verse 10. Uh, he says, Sharon, that would be one of the plains in Israel, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. Now, uh, you, you may remember, you may not, so we'll give a reminder. Uh, again, Sam kind of read about this in Isaiah. There's, the phrase there is that the valley of Achor will become a door of hope. Achor, it's actually really easy to remember, um, Achor is associated with the man named Achan uh, in the book of Joshua. Remember Achan? Uh, Israel was supposed to go in and overthrow Jericho, but not take any of its stuff. Well, what did, what did, uh, what did Achan do? He took the stuff. And so it was found out that it was him. The way they found it out is because Israel got defeated in the next battle. Joshua was like, what's going on? And so they figured out, all right, Achan's guilty. And remember what Achan's punishment was? He was stoned and all his family with him. And they named that place the Valley of Achor. And Achor is a word that means trouble. So every time Israel would hear about or see the Valley of Achor, they were probably reminded of the way God dealt very seriously with sin because of the trouble that Achan had brought upon his people. And yet, here's the Lord in Isaiah saying that even the valley that caused great trouble for you will become a place for you to live and for your pasture, uh, a pasture for your flocks to feed. It will be a place of hope 
for my people who have sought me. And the Lord is promising that to His people there um, in Isaiah. The second thing that will happen at this new creation is that distress will turn to joy. Distress will turn to joy. Um, look Look at verse 17. The promise is this. He says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Again, picture of constant joy in this new place uh, for for God and His people who are with Him. And, and you continue reading, and again, it's it's kind of repetitive of some of the earlier chapters in Isaiah, but it talk, it's talking about like uh, the wolf and the lamb lying down together, um, children being able to play where the snakes are, which I wouldn't recommend now. Um, but but that's the kind of thing that's coming, is a land where where all, all of these currently sad things will come untrue. And the last promise is this, Evildoers will become worshipers. Evildoers will become worshipers. So Isaiah 66 uh, explains um, people, begins, begins by talking about people who uh, use religion for their own gain. All right? I want, I want you to think a little bit about how applicable that might be. Uh, some of you maybe only come to a gathering like this because it helps your reputation. Or because um, it, it makes makes you or your family look good, or or it's it's convenient. All right, maybe there's some personal benefit that you think you get from being here, uh, and and it's just a habit, it's just a ritual. Uh, and when you're here, maybe you, maybe you genuinely worship, and maybe you don't. Um, but look at how look at what the Lord says. Um, look at how He describes it, verse twenty-two. So Isaiah sixty-six twenty-two. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. All flesh will come to worship before me, including those who previously... Um, had had no time for true worship. They were only going through the motions. In fact, there's a description here that, that seems to indicate that uh, for, for Israel who's stuck uh, in just the you know, mundaneness of just going through the motions in worship, the Lord says, I'll take this good news to peoples who haven't heard it yet, and they will glorify my name. They will worship me. This is the hope of the future that we have to look forward to. So you don't have to look only to the New Testament to see, uh, to see promises and truths about heaven, right? Uh, they're here even in Isaiah too. They're all throughout the Bible. I'll close with this. Uh, this is the way C.S. Lewis ends the last battle. He says, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. 
Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that's what it'll be for us as well. So, let's pray. Father, we are glad that these things are true. We trust that they are. Uh, we we rest in in the the fact that that this really is where the world is headed. Um, because if it's not, we we really have no hope. We really have no reason for joy. Lord, I pray you'll make us joyful in the truly important things. Um, I pray that we will anticipate the day when all our desires truly will be acceptable before you. And so we pray even now, uh, change our desires such that we will want what you want for us. Uh, that we'll live our lives now in view, in light of the, uh, the life to come. So whatever that means for us as individuals, whatever that means for us as a church, we pray you'll make it to be true, uh, that we would be obedient, that our worship would be genuine and not just um, habitual. Uh, even now as we close, help us to do it in a way that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.